Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are listening to the Nighttime Podcast. Hello, listeners. It's just about Halloween, so I figured I'd do my best to redecorate around here and help you get in the mood. When I think of an appropriate setting for this holiday, my mind quickly turns to my city's many aging burial grounds. See, Halifax, Nova Scotia has been home to countless fascinating people and the cast members of just about as many stories. And most of these folks are still here. They just lay below the surface, forever entombed in our graveyards. Now, although we can't directly communicate with them and get their story straight from the source, their resting places do serve as an effective venue to explore their histories. In a prior episode, I introduced you to Craig Ferguson, a nice but kind of creepy fella in Halifax who runs a social media presence he calls Dead in Halifax. If you've listened to our two prior episodes or follow the work he does online, you probably heard his catchphrase, graveyards are where history comes to life. And tonight, Craig's going to try to prove it again. When we last met, Craig Ferguson and I walked and talked our way through the dead who lay in Halifax's old burying grounds. Tonight, we're going to take another walk amongst the dead in Halifax. Since 1843, the Holy Cross Cemetery has been the permanent resting place of expired souls with a connection to Halifax, Nova Scotia. There lays a prime minister, Catholic bishops, politicians, shopkeepers, the young, the old, Death brought all types of people and their stories to Holy Cross for us to learn from. So let's dig into it. Tonight in this episode, Craig Ferguson, the creator of Dead in Halifax and author of the companion book Dead in Halifax, will give us a guided tour of Halifax's Holy Cross Cemetery. So, Craig, you walk through a lot of graveyards, spend a lot of time here. Do you ever worry you're going to get haunted? Is any of this stuff going to follow you home? No, I'm happy to say that I don't believe in any of it. And really? the way that that stuff works is if you don't believe in it, they never bother you. Real, yeah. Kind of like Freddy Krueger. Kind of like Freddy Krueger. <laughs> this is a good place to start. So we've just walked in right from South Park Street. And um, I, this Holy Cross, you wouldn't think of building a cemetery as being like a happy time or a big celebration. But to the Catholic community in Halifax, and particularly the Irish community in Halifax, having their own cemetery was a real sign that they had arrived and that they were an important part of the community. You know, in uh, in about a 25-year period, it went from being about 25% of the uh, people living in Halifax were Irish to about like almost 50, like 42% okay. or something like that. And that's all in and around the time that this cemetery uh, was created. It replaced St. Peter's Cemetery, which is in downtown Halifax. If you go to Taz Records and you buy some records, you're parking on top of a few thousand dead Catholics that are underneath the par- the pavement there. They don't mention that in their advertising. They don't mention it so much, but you know, it depends if you're into death metal and you're picking up that kind of uh, yeah. those kind of records at Taz. It's probably not a bad uh, <laughs> bargaining chip. So. This was to replace old St. Peter's, which had become full. All the old burying grounds downtown had become like full and unhygienic by the 1840s and were being shut down. And they made this cemetery, like how do you make a cemetery? Mm -hmm. But they made this cemetery in two days in 1843. The first day was in July. And and that day they did some kind of landscaping work. They um, 
you know, they built a bridge to cross a brook that was in here. They um, put up the gates probably over there where the gates are today. And they um, also uh, built a reservoir. Okay. And then on August in 1843, the thing that one of the things that the cemetery is most famous for is they built that chapel over there, Our Lady of Sorrows or Our Lady of Dolores. Um, they built that chapel in a day. Okay, I'm always curious about that chapel. When I drive by here, that's just in the center of a very old graveyard, what looks like a really tiny church. I kind of thought that was like, you know, where they would put like people who've been cremated or something. I thought it was something like that. No, it's not. I mean, what you're thinking of is a columbarium kind okay. of thing is yeah. where they put the, they have like little niches to put the remains of people who have been cremated. But no, this is a chapel for the performing of funeral services. And it is specifically dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrows, which is a depiction of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she has tears streaming down her face and blades piercing her heart. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the seven sorrows focus on Mary's suffering and grief during tragic moments of the life of Jesus. Um, and for Catholics, it's like a fitting devotion for a place of mourning okay. right yeah now, uh, this this church or that sorry this um, cemetery or graveyard obviously is very old is this still active it's still active in terms of being like a columbarium like there's a, they put up a new they put up a new um what is that black granite uh sort of structure where they have niches where you'll put the remains of people who have been cremated and there are still family plots i don't think that they're selling uh you know, plots in the ground anymore. I think I don't. I think that that's discontinued for some time. But there's some recent burials because people buy family plots. You know, some time ago, like uh, a man will die. You know, young in like the 1970s or something, and his wife continues to live for a long time, perhaps, mm -hmm. and she'll you know need to be buried next week. Yeah. Okay. Well, we stopped at this particular gravestone. Is there a reason? Well, well, what do you see? This is. Uh, Let's let's paint a picture for the people. When you walk in from South Park Street, at the front of uh, Holy Cross on South Park Street, there's a Canadian flag, mm -hmm. and you don't see that at every cemetery. There's two of those in cemeteries in Halifax, but it's a little clue, right? It's uh, a clue that there is a prime minister uh, buried here. So where we stopped here is a large uh, stone monument. It has better landscaping than any other monument in Certainly. the cemetery. It's in a place of prominence and it is a, um, uh, looks like a casket, a casket with a large cross on top, right? And it is dedicated to the memory of uh, the Right Honorable Sir John S.D. Uh, Thompson, right? John Sparrow Thompson, the Prime Minister of the Dominion of Canada, who died suddenly at Windsor Castle, December 12th, 1894. Wow. So it says here, shortly after being sworn in as a member of Her Majesty's Privy Council, right? That's when he died. His remains were, by command of Her Majesty Queen Victoria, born to Canada by the British man of war Blenheim and buried on January 3rd, 1895, aged 50 years. Wow. So Sir John Sparrow David Thompson, who was born in 1845 and died in 1894. He was the first Catholic uh, prime minister. Okay. He's a very important person in the history of uh, Catholicism, the history of Canada, and uh, the history of Halifax. And now I'm gonna to read to you a little bit from uh, my book, uh, Dead in Halifax, just to um, you know, make sure we cover off some of the uh, most important details. Let's do it. Uh, I, I sort of characterize uh, Thompson as, um, as a really reluctant prime minister, okay? John David Thompson could barely find the desire to ever get into politics, never mind ascending to the highest offices in the land. 
I, I don't think there's ever been anyone who wanted the job less than this man. Who be, and he became premier and prime minister, and he never, uh, ever successfully led a party in an election. He uh, once turned down the prime minister's job, and his strange political career came to an abrupt end. He dropped dead in front of the queen. Oh, that's one way to get out of it. Yeah. So uh, I'll read to you a little bit about his uh, early life. You know, he was born on November 10th, 1845. And as a boy, Thompson was shy, quiet and earnest. His father tried to break him out of his shell by encouraging him to perform poetry recitals. It made him really good at public speaking. He was very good, but he never liked it. Mm-hmm. He was trained as a lawyer and he was called to the bar in 1865. And his father died when he was um, 22. He had a bit of a romantic side. Uh, he was courting his wife, Annie Affleck, and he taught her a shorthand that he'd learned from his father so they could communicate in secret. And so they passed like love notes and the juiciest bits, of course, were all written in code. Um, she was Catholic and he was a Methodist at first, but when he got news that she was pregnant with uh, their first child, he converted. Nice. And it took special dispensation at the time for a Methodist to marry a Catholic in the first place. One of the things that we learn in the history of Halifax is that political lines and um, religious lines are often overlap uh, those divisions in early Halifax, and sometimes things uh, change sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, all throughout Canada, that's the case. I'm going to read to you about Thompson's death. Okay, yeah, I'm okay. curious. You can learn a lot about his political career, but we we are here uh, to... So the <laughs> book is called Dead in Halifax. The book not, is not uh, called Politics not of Prime Halifax. Minister in yes, Ottawa. yes. Let's pick it up here. Thompson's turn as prime minister is marked by ongoing disputes between Catholics and Protestants about the control of school boards. Another challenge came in the form of seditious whispers from a handful of liberals who supported annexation by the United States. The stress of public life took its toll. He stood five foot seven, and uh, in 1885 he weighed 190 pounds, but by 1894 he'd grown to 220 pounds, 225 pounds. So five foot seven, 225 pounds. Um, that, you know, you know, this BMI, the body mass index, it's yeah. a sort of imperfect measurement of people's fitness. Uh, his was 35.4, okay. um, and it carries an elevated risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes. And by the end of 1894, his legs were swollen, which could be a sign of heart disease or other problems. On December, moving on, on December 12th, 1894, Thompson was named to Queen Victoria's Privy Council at Windsor Castle, He's become, which is why he's styled the Right Honorable Sir John Thompson. Uh, but he didn't get to enjoy that title for long. Mm. At the luncheon following the ceremony, Thompson fainted. He was taken to another room to recover, but soon returned apparently embarrassed. Quote, it seems too absurd to faint like this, he said. And shortly after returning to the table, he keeled over dead, oh, slumping into the lap of the Queen's doctor, who'd been seated next to him. He was 49 years old. Damn. What a way to go. So the Queen personally laid the funeral wreath on Thompson's casket in Windsor Castle, and then she ordered the man-of-war HMS Blenheim to carry Thompson's body home. The ship was decked out in mourning colors, its sides painted black, its gangway draped in black cloth. Despite typically rainy, slushy Halifax weather, there were crowds waiting on the wharf when the Blenheim arrived in the dockyard in the North End. The streets of Halifax were lined with throngs of people, craning their necks to catch a glimpse of the funeral procession as it headed south along Barrington Street. The Archbishop of Halifax delivered the eulogy over his body here at Holy Cross on January 3rd, 1895. He's buried just inside the main entrance here under a 
cross made of gray granite quarried at Nikto in the Annapolis Valley. And there's like a federal program that started in 18, or sorry, that started, there's a federal program that started in 1999 that takes care of these grave sites. Okay, which is probably why this looks so much newer than everything else. Well, it definitely looks like it's really well taken care of. It's really clean. It has this stone boulders and the gravel uh, all around it. And that's why we have the flag at the front gates, okay. right? There is a similar, when you drive along the Bedford Highway, the grave of uh, Charles Tupper, right? Okay. Which is in uh, St. John's Anglican mm -hmm. Cemetery up there. He's sort of the one of the great <clears throat> what ifs of Canadian history because people like really respected him. He had this career of great achievement. He was the premier of Nova Scotia. He became the prime minister, but he honestly never wanted either one of those jobs and he died very young. It's kind of a sad story because it's it's almost like getting thrust into this job you don't really want in a time where there's so much stress. And then it sound, by the sounds of it, it seems like it maybe it got to him. Well, you know, he certainly didn't. Uh, he was certainly not the picture of health mm -hmm. by the time he died. And uh, quite a way to go. Yeah. Slumping over dead at the queen's table. Yeah. Now, one thing when you're when you're in this graveyard looking around, so many of the monuments they look so old and weathered his looks so fresh and polished i would think that this is 10 years old despite seeing the date of 1894 on it um is this the original monument i i it's the original monument i would assume that it, it is better taken care of and cleaned and repointed you know mm -hmm. when the need uh when the need arises it's also just a bigger and more substantial more durable design yeah. than a lot of the uh, gravestones in here. Uh, Catholic cemeteries, typically you have a lot of crosses mm -hmm. and the cross is a very important religious symbol, but is a uh, very difficult, uh, to, uh, maintain in stone. You yeah. see a lot of broken crosses, yeah, true. uh, in cemetery work. The community, the Irish Catholic community in Halifax has really embraced Holy Crosses today as an important symbol mm -hmm. of its history here in Halifax. And it wasn't too long ago that this place was really overgrown and there was a lot of monuments that were broken and tumbled down. And there was a massive community effort um, in pretty recent decades to um, sort of resurrect, if you'll excuse the metaphor, Holy Cross. Well, it looks good. I, I know that's something you you are involved in a lot. When we talked last time at the old burying ground, you told me a lot about the efforts to maintain the headstones and stuff. This seems like it's... It, a big step ahead in terms of condition than the other graves, the grave sites we've been to. This is better taken care of than, for example, Camp Hill, mm -hmm. which um, is its contemporary. Mm -hmm. uh, Camp Hill has a lot more uh, broken uh, gravestones, and I think it just comes down to this is taken care of by the diocese and by the uh, efforts of people who are involved in that group. And Camp Hill, for example, is taken care of by a bureaucracy okay. in the city, okay. and um, as such, it's been left to sort of uh, fall apart. We're off to another spot. We're off to, well, not so far, actually. Take a look at this. this is, so we're, this is immediately behind our backs from where we were just standing. This is immediately across from uh, the grave of Sir John Sparrow David Thompson. And this is for Charles Robinson. And you would be surprised, right, to find someone who won the Medal of Honor for the U.S. Navy in the Civil War buried in Halifax. Yeah, the U.S. Navy. 
the U.S. Navy. And I can tell you that this is not where Charles Robinson is buried. We don't know where Charles Robinson is buried. We know that he's buried in here somewhere. But um, when during that time, when they took, they decided to take a big interest in, as I said, resurrecting Holy Cross, they needed a place to put this, and they gave him a place of relative distinction. He's across the road mm -hmm. from the Prime Minister. This is an area that is typically. Um, full of these tiny gravestones that are for unbaptized children. Oh, is that what that is? Which wow. is a typical feature of a Catholic uh, burying place. But this is where they put Charles Robinson so that people will be able to find it just across from um, the prime minister. Yeah, and this is a different style. Where it, to me, this looks like, if I was to describe it, just a, a rectangle of concrete on the ground with a heavy like brass piece of, I guess it's brass, on top of it with his name, the Medal of Honor, yeah, birth and death dates in the cross. This is a different style than anything else in this graveyard well, the, that I've seen. This is an American uh, commission that takes care of this, that put this up, because the Medal of Honor is the highest uh, distinction that a military person can get in the, uh, in the U.S. military. So they really um, take care of these grave sites. And if you come here around um, Memorial Day, American Memorial Day, or around July 4th, you will find American flags stuck in the ground here around Charles Robinson's oh, nice. grave as a sign of respect in uh, Holy Cross Cemetery. Interesting. So when, when a grave is, or a burial site is lost to time, would you expect that maybe that means like at one point his headstone fell over and you know the records weren't kept to the point that they could find it? I'm just wondering how that could happen. That could happen in a lot of ways. Um, one thing is that you know, they had pauper's graves here as well, right? Um, so, for example, I don't know, have you ever heard about the poorhouse fire, the awful poorhouse fire? I, I know that the, the name, like I understand that that's an event that happened, but I don't know the history of it. Yeah, and, and I don't have all the details on the tip of my tongue, but there was a 19th century uh, Victorian poorhouse in Halifax. We've talked a lot about the um, poorhouse burying ground before, right? Mm -hmm. By the old library on Spring Garden. Yeah. But for example, the dead from the poorhouse were buried here in Holy Cross if they were known to be Catholic, okay. right? And I know that 10 people from the poorhouse fire, for example, were buried here. Um, those graves may never have been marked, which is typical with pauper's graves. They could have been marked with wooden crosses mm. that fade, you know, and rot, fade away. They could have been marked with uh, a stone that broke. Um, I know from experience at the old burying ground, the way they discovered a lot of missing gravestones was it uh, was through doing like work at the very surface level because a gravestone will break, it will fall, and then gradually with like frost heave and spring rains, the ground softens up and the gravestone sinks just enough that it can start being covered by the grass. Wow. If you walk around Camp Hill, you can see it happening in real time. Yeah. Uh, it takes decades, but that's how you lose a gravestone. Okay. You know, the records may have been lost. Um, in Halifax, we had a big explosion. You remember yeah, that? I've heard of that. And yeah. so I found that a lot of records from around that time period, for example, are missing. There are all sorts of ways that the dead can become lesser memorialized. And part of the interest that I have in doing this project is trying to tease out some of those details from history and find the stories of people who might otherwise be forgotten. Somebody's already done this here for Charles Robinson. Beautiful. We can walk on. We'll walk on. It's a really nice sort of pastoral cemetery, and we don't think about this being outside of town or the edge of town. But of course, in the 1840s, this would have been 
you can see up the hill there is um, Fort Massey, and that's a military burying ground, and that goes back to the mid-1700s. There was a fort, an actual military fort called Fort Massey. It's not just the name of the church okay. up there, but that's that whole area is called Fort Massey. It was a series of fortifications. You know, there was Citadel Hill, Fort George, mm -hmm. Fort Massey. There was the forts at um, Point Pleasant Park. There was uh, the forts on McNabb's Islands. And all these forts operated as a system of fortifications. They were all within visual sight line of each other. They could communicate so through cool. flags. You know, and all that we have left now is the name Fort Massey and the um, cemetery, which is full of all of its own stories, of I course. Bet. Yes. But part of the land that became Holy Cross was at one point part of the Fort Massey um, burying ground. And there would have been, for example, in 1832, there was a cholera outbreak and there was a mass grave at Fort Massey. And it's probably now on the grounds of Holy Cross Cemetery. Wow. Well, what a city of history Halifax is. You know, people don't really um, understand how important it was as a, as a port at the time, as a British port. And of course, it um, is a bit of a crossroads of the world mm -hmm. at the time with people coming and going and interesting characters and uh, so much, um, you know, traffic and transit and crime happening you know Halifax was an interesting and and frankly kind of salty place a lot of the times yeah certainly but seeing just as you say like kind of a crossroads um you, you see that in the in the graveyards like we have someone over there who won the medal of honor for the American military all the other graveyard graves grave sites we visited in the past together it's been those same stories this is a famous American person and you know it's, it's like all over the world seems to have connect it with Halifax at one point in history. And I try to draw people in with those stories, you know. Um, I want to tell people the stories that are going to interest them, you know, the most famous people. Um, but I also want to tell the stories of people you might have, history might have forgotten about mm -hmm. or never even known about. We're going to go see uh, uh, Johnny Power's grave over there. What and Johnny Power, is, uh, the, Johnny Power is the person who first got me interested in this. His grave really? is the first thing that got me interested in. We'll head over there Let's now. go check him out. I recognize that name. Is Johnny Power's a uh, famous character? No. Johnny Power, not at all. I do want to show you here as we walk along. I'll get dis I get distracted easily. <laughs> um, some of these gravestones, not this one. See, this is where I get confused. Not this one, but there's one around here of this type that are, these are the earliest gravestones yeah, here. Yeah, a completely different look. Completely different look. But some of these have been moved here from... Um, St. Peter's. This one hasn't. This one's from 1846. Speaking of broken crosses, looks like a broken cross on the ground right there. Yeah, it's still some of these ironworks left, you know, which show you are kind of a remnant of a time when this was a more rural area, because one of the things uh, those those ironworks surrounds for a gravestone will do, we're looking at a series of sort of iron it's ironwork, kind of like pillars and posts and railings. One of the things those are designed to do is keep um, pasturing animals off your grave. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah, you don't have much of a problem with that downtown Halifax. Not anymore. You can see, you can see this is one that would have been moved from St. 
St. Peter's downtown, and you can see how important the Irish roots were to people here, right? Because it says, sacred to the memory of George Malloy, a native of White Church, County Wexford, Ireland, who departed this life the 13th of November, 1837. So that is a full, like, what, six years before the cemetery opened? Okay. His, his remains are likely still on the corner of... Uh, of uh, Spring Garden Road there by the by the Taz record shop right wow. by the old by the Catholic Church there they had their own burying ground just outside the church he, his remains are probably still under there but they moved a lot of these gravestones what would be the point of moving them just rather than just paving them over when they're developing the land or yeah I think so I think you, you might like you might not be able to afford to have your loved one's remains yeah. exhumed and moved. That's a big effort. Hell yeah. um, but you might still not relish the idea of their sto- gravestone being smashed to bits in order to make room for you know a park or a parking lot or yeah. whatever, whatever it was being used for in, in, in the immediate short term. I, I just noticed this one here that stands out. It's, the heading of this one is My Parents. A hundred, yes. That, that's like a kid who really wanted credit for getting their parents a nice burial. Well, you know, who knows what went through people's minds, <laughs> you know? And um, I think that uh, one thing I notice a lot in the old burying ground is you can find um, graves for women where the name of the person buried under the gravestone is smaller than the name of their husband. I've seen a few of those already, yeah. yeah. Who knows exactly what's going through people's minds or what style of gravestones were available and how much of this is picking it out of a book or versus uh, you know, choosing for yourself what's yeah, on there. Yeah, good point. But it, it is a unique gravestone, that's for sure. There is one around here that is very clearly marked as being the first gravestone erected here. And it was obviously significant enough that the people wanted that noted right on the gravestone. Okay. And it looks a lot like this. This isn't it, but it looks a lot like this. And it has the same sort of like very like emotional, uh, emotionally provocative carving of the crucifixion of Jesus on it. Um, but, you know, almost, almost folksy. Almost folksy, but it's a very evocative, right? You can see they've taken time to uh, depict the ribs. Yeah. You yeah. know? Um, and it really uh, powerful, despite, like, perhaps not being, like, a virtuosic carving. I don't know. That's pretty impressive. And considering that this has been weathered, you know, 200 years, you can still make out his ribcage. You can still make it out. And this is 1845, so this would have been one of the very earliest gravestones in this Over here, here's a here's another one that's been moved from St. Peter's. And it's interesting to me. A very folksy oh, yeah. uh, crucifixion. And then these, there are on either sides of the crucifixion, these sort of disembodied heads with wings on them. And those are um, people who are interested in gravestones call those soul effigies. Okay. Right, they're a representation of the soul of the dead. It's a bit unusual to see them this sort of late. Like, it's a bit unusual to see them in the 1840s. We have lots of soul effigies, you'll remember, carved in mm-hmm. at the old bearing ground in late 1700s. But this is 1840. 
Um, but it's it, it's just an interesting gravestone to me. It's obviously been moved um, from St. Peter's. And here's another reason why you would move the gravestone. Whether or not they move the remains is so that you can have a family plot. Mm-hmm. Because you can see there are other members of the Kennedy family here who died later. Um, but they're buried in the same plot that's outlined with uh, stone on the ground. So another reason to move the gravestone, whether or not they've moved the body, I'm not sure. But it's so you can have an intact family plot where all of your um, relations can come to mourn. 1828. This William Condon story is interesting. I'll tell you about it. Let's walk over to him. I have to read from the book to tell you about him. So this stone is from St. Peter's originally, and it commemorates William Condon, who died March 3rd, 1828. He and his wife, Anne, immigrated to Canada sometime around 1812. After William Condon died, his wife, Anne, married another man who was also named William Condon. (laughs) Now, Annie... She has a type. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Annie and William Condon, that's the first William Condon. They had a son, and they named their son William Condon. So that William Condon someday... Uh, would become the head of the Charitable Irish Society of Halifax, which is a very important group uh, to the history of the cemetery in particular, but uh, also to the history of the Irish Catholic folks um, here in Halifax. And he was a, he played a pivotal role in the history of Nova Scotian politics after an incident known as the Gorley Shanty Riot. And this paints an interesting picture of Halifax. On May 25th, 1856, a procession of Catholics marching... Uh, sorry... On May 25, 1856, a procession of Catholics marking the Feast of Corpus Christi were ridiculed and harassed by a group of Protestant railway laborers. The next day, a group of Catholics got their retribution by attacking the camp of one of the men whose name was Gourley. The railway commissioner, a man named Joseph Howe, who we've all heard of, of course, made the whole heated incident boil over by saying Protestants had the right to laugh at all to quote laugh at all religious absurdities be they catholic jewish or muslim not joseph howe's finest moment (laughs) uh outrage exploded over his remarks as head of the charitable Irish society william condon was one of the most vocal and influential of howe's critics howe exacted his revenge um, by having condon fired from his government job again not, we remember Joseph Howe as this hero of the free press. These are not his finest moments. The furor over Howe's remarks led all Catholics, Irish, Scottish, and Acadian to abandon the Liberal Party. Two Protestant liberals left as well, and in all, ten liberals crossed the floor, and the Liberal government fell as a result. Wow. In 1857, William Condon was appointed... And remember, this is the son of this William Condon. Yeah. Uh, he's the third William Condon in our story. Was appointed commissioner of lighthouses, but when Howe's liberals returned to power in 1861, they fired him again. He couldn't find another job until 1865 when he was appointed the lighthouse keeper of Egg Island, which is near Clam Harbor, and he held that post until 1874 when a storm washed its home, his home off its foundations and destroyed every building except the light tower itself. He retired, handing the job over to his own son, who was also named William, William Condon. Condon. <laughs> Man, way to get a complicated, uh, complicated life around yourself. Times were tricky, right? And as I said before, all of the um, religious and political lines in Halifax, you know, they often overlapped, but sometimes they, they swapped sides, yeah. you know? And 
religion is obviously a bigger part of life historically than it is right now. Um, but it's important to remember and talk about those things to understand what the um, passions and tensions were that were uh, driving events in our community at the time. Over here, when Johnny Power, right here. <coughs> this is a gravestone you might not be inclined to notice. But one day I was in here um, because I work in film and television and I was looking for a location to film something. And I just happened to see this gravestone and this was, for me was the beginning of all of this. This was the beginning of getting curious about gravestones, about um, what happened to the people. And it was the first time I ever figured out like how to research these things. How okay. can I find out about this person and what happened? This is the gravestone of John Edward, son of John, Jay, and Ann Power. And as it says right on the gravestone, he was lost in the woods of the Northwest Arm, July 24th, 1920, age 13 years old. Wow. Just a kid, mm -hmm. right? So that caught my interest for a few reasons. One thing is that the lost in the woods of the Northwest Arm, Northwest Iron must have been a different place back yeah, then. Yeah, certainly. You're going to have a hard time getting lost over there now. You would have a hard time getting lost in the woods of the Northwest Arm now. Um, the other thing is that he was just 13. I have kids, you know, and um, I also have had some experiences in my own life. You know, when I was about 13 years old, a classmate of mine was killed by a drunk driver. Um, when I was, a I used to be a TV news reporter, and when I was a TV news reporter, I um, reported on uh, the drowning of a, of a kid about this age on like one of the first hot summer days. Yeah. Uh, and it's a story that really stuck with me and that I've never forgotten. So when I saw this, I was reminded of all those things and I had some kind of feeling about it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to describe it, but I just wanted to know what happened to him. Mm -hmm. And I'm a bit of a sentimental guy and you'd think, you'd think things like, when's the last time anybody said his name mm -hmm. or thought about him or wondered what became of him? And I also knew, because I was a reporter, that this would have been a story. It would have been a story. A kid got lost in the woods of the Northwest Arm and was obviously never found alive. What happened to him? And I would imagine also from a well-to-do family, because this is a significant monument. That's an interesting observation, but not a particularly well-to-do family. So um, Johnny Power was a poor Irish kid. And his dad was a mailman. His dad was a mailman. He was involved with you know, uh, the church and the local Irish organization, like the Order of Hebrideans, I think was a charitable Irish group at the time. And uh, he, had he been a little bit wealthier, when it was on a real scorcher of a day in late July in 1920, he would have been able to go to someplace like the Wagwaltic mm -hmm. or, you know, um, any number of the clubs that were along the arm at the time and go somewhere supervised for a swim, right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't able to. Him and his friends walked from his from their neighborhood. He lived at the corner of Creighton and Cornwallis. Mm. And this is where the story got weird for me because he lived in a house next to a house where I lived for several years, wow. right? We were separated by a hundred years or so, but you know, we could have been neighbors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they walked from uh, Creighton and Cornwallis all the way to the other side of the arm into what's now like the Dingle Park. Yeah. And Johnny and his friends were hanging out. And Johnny couldn't swim, right? And you think you know where the story's going. You think it's a sad story of a drowning, but that's not it, right? He was lost in the woods. 
he put his feet in the water because he couldn't swim. Took off his shoes and socks, put his feet in the water. Um, and hung out for a while, and then he's just bored of it, you know? And so he went for a walk. And he went for a walk away from uh, this pool where him and his... Not a pool, but I mean like a, a pool of water, you know? Like a gravel pit, I think it probably... Something like that. Um, he had his feet in the water in a pond... And he said, got bored of it, and he walked away, and he was never seen again. Now, this is where it becomes a story. Mm-hmm. When I went to the archives, I started looking through the newspaper accounts from the time. And I was right, you know. It was a front-page news story. This kid had gone missing, and he was, they searched for him for days and days and days. At one point, there's 500 people out looking for him. The chief of police is out there. The mayor is out there looking for him you know and they never found him there's never it went on for about a week before a solid week of that before they gave up hope there was at one point um a rumor around town that they had found him alive and people were out in the streets at Creighton and Cornwallis like celebrating but it turned out not to be true the media followed his family like they were minor local celebrities for a little while one of his siblings um accidentally drank some uh Oh, I forget what it's called. Like uh, a te- like a not lye, but something like that. That's mm-hmm. you know a harsh chemical that's used for laundry. Okay. One of his one of his younger siblings, you know, drank some of that and burned their mouth, and that made the newspaper okay. because people were because of her association to him. Yeah, they, they you know um, tragic. You know what is it? Um, Stricken families once again tragically afflicted. I okay. think was yeah, the headline. Yeah. you know they were a bit that. of a celebrity cause in the city. So it was about a year before um, a hunter found the remains of Johnny Power in the woods. Um, and it wasn't very far from where they had looked, you know? And they they got the impression that he hadn't actually lasted very long in the woods. Nobody knows exactly what happened. The death certificate says he died of exposure. There's no way to know. He was... Um, out there and that night the night after he went missing there was like one of those real sudden rainstorms that you have in the um summertime after it's been real hot you get these hot you know it seems like it's cooking all day and then the skies just open you get it pours down rain thunder and lightning i grew up in ontario where that sort of thing's real common there had been a storm like that that night and remember, he didn't have shoes and socks, and he just like a shirt and pants, yeah. you know. And if you're soaking wet and out in the woods, and 13 years old, and probably didn't have a lot of meat on your bones, like he's not going to last very long. Yeah, it, it's just surprising hearing the story, knowing what that area is like now. But I guess, again, then he would have been deep in the forest, I'm sure, by this point. Well, this is the whole thing. There was a lot of mining operations and stuff around there. Like it was a much more substantially wild place. And remember, who I told you found him was somebody out hunting, hunting deer, yeah, right? Exactly. So right. it was a different place than uh-huh. it is today. And so, you know, his story reminds us one about how the city's changed, two about how like a community can come together to search for uh, someone in a situation like this. And three, just about how, like, some things never change. You know, when I was a, a news reporter, I had to report on these stories of, like, you know, kids who drowned or got into some sort of other misadventure on that first hot day in the summer, you know? 
Yeah, and sadly it does happen every several years to this day. But this is where it started for me. It started for me with the story of Johnny Power. I just wanted to know what happened to him. And as you go through the history and you learn all this stuff about him, you realize then, like, I could do this with other graves. And, you know, there's this kind of stories all over these places. Yeah, it just made me curious about other ones as I, as I walked around. Interesting. Yeah. We're heading way up. Uh, we're heading up towards the church. So I didn't show you it, but along the church there, we walked past. Well, we skipped it because we came in. But there's Bishop's Row, which is all the most significant f figures from the Catholic Church in Halifax, are buried here. And they have um, inscriptions in Latin cool. and quite ornate stones. On the other side of the church, on the south side of the church, are the um, nuns. Oh, you know, who okay. are buried in much more humble um, graves. You know, they're just like a flat headstone uh, with the name of the person and sometimes I think the order that they belong to. <coughs> First of all, where we're stopping is probably the creepiest tree in Halifax is directly above our heads. It is not a bad candidate for the title <laughs> of the creepiest tree in Halifax. Um, all right. So you can't see many of them here. But if you look carefully, you'll see these yellow stakes okay. throughout the cemetery. There's one here. There's one way over there by the fence yeah. in our eye line. And it's just a wooden stake painted yellow. There's just a few more of them around here. Uh, just a handful of them in Holy Cross. If you drive by the newer Catholic cemetery, Mount Olivet, out by the Halifax Shopping Center, in some parts of it, it's just a sea of yellow, yellow stakes. What do you think those mean? If, honestly, my, as a layman, I'd be like, maybe that needs landscaping service or something. Like, it looks like a very temporary marker that is uh, utilitarian in nature. This is where we're going to whippersnip weedy tomorrow morning. So this gravestone for the Broderick family um, has one, two three, four members of the Broderick family on it. But right here in the middle, here's your clue. William T. Broderick died December 6, 1917, aged 35 years. Okay. So uh, that is the date of the Halifax explosion. Oh. And a few years ago, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Halifax explosion, the diocese did what I think is a great and simple gesture, is that they marked all the explosion graves in Catholic cemeteries um, with these yellow stakes. Interesting, okay. And so when you're in here, you can um, find them that way. And uh, of course, the cemetery was already old by that time. Mm -hmm. So that's why the newer Catholic cemetery, Mount Olivet, has so many more okay. um, explosion-related graves, including uh, the gravestone of Vincent Coleman, who, the infamous, uh, not infamous, but the uh, celebrated telegraph operator yeah. who... Um, sent that message to stop the train. Which is a, a very modest uh, way to point them out, but I guess if, if you were doing a tour related to the Halifax explosion, this would guide the tour guide maybe? Because like, it, it, it's not something obvious. I would walk through here a hundred times before I realized there was a yellow piece of wood. I next think to this that one. at the time of the 100th anniversary that there was probably um, some more notoriety given to these okay. gravestones as a way to sort of uh, follow up on them. And and St. Mary's University, has, which is, of course, traditionally a Catholic university, has done a lot of work with the archdiocese around 
the graveyards and a lot of the um, research that I leaned on in telling the stories in the book came from them actually it was hard to find better sources like they had sort of uh, even if I found an original source it had already been found and used um, in their in their literature but uh, what makes William T. Broderick uh, most interesting is that um, he was not only someone who was killed by the explosion, but he was a firefighter. Okay. And the Halifax explosion is the deadliest day in the history of Canadian firefighting. Wow. And uh, there are three uh, firefighters from the Halifax explosion um, buried here in Holy Cross. I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. Their names are Fire Chief Edward P. Condon, uh, Fire Chief William Thomas Broderick, whose grave we stand in front of right now, and Hoseman uh, Frank Leahy. Um, so when they got the call that there was this fire down at, um, down at Pier 6, um, somebody had like, somebody had pulled the fire alarm number 83, which is on the corner of Room Street and, Bar- um, and Barrington Street. And the ship had been burning for 15 minutes at this point, right? We all sort of know the story of the, the two ships colliding, right? The munitions ship, um, and it was about nine o'clock, right? So a fire call to Pier 6 was no big surprise to anyone since ships loaded and unloaded coal there. And so there were small blazes there pretty often. And in those days, the fire department mostly relied on the old fashioned kind of horsepower. They, you know, they had actual horses in their stables, but they also had uh, the only motorized pumper in Canada, the 67 horsepower 1913 Patricia, which was built by American La France Fire Engine Company in Toronto and the Patricia could pump 750 gallons of water per minute. When the alarm sounded at the station on West Street, where there's still a fire station today, Mm -hmm. right on West Street, Hoseman Billy Wells raced to get behind the wheel of the Patricia. Captains William Broderick and Michael Maltus jumped in the back, along with Hoseman Frank Leahy, Walter Hennessy, and Frank Killeen. And they were wearing like sou'westers, you know, and raincoats and rubber boots, like, you know, like an old fat, what we imagine an old fashioned firefighter looked like they didn't know what they were, what they were getting into. What they were getting into. So meanwhile, um, Chief Edward Condon and Deputy Chief William uh, Brunt were close behind in the Patricia, right? And Brunt was driving the Chief's 19... Or they were close behind the Patricia, sorry. Brunt was driving the Chief's 1911 McLaughlin Roadster. Um, at the Isleville station, Hoseman John Duggan had gotten a hose wagon ready. Um, a harness dropped from the ceiling onto a waiting horse. They headed out into the street and galloped towards Pier 6. Over at the Brunswick Street Station, the exact same scene was playing out as Hoseman John Spruin harnessed up his horse and raced north. When the crew of the Patricia arrived at Pier 6, the Mont Blanc was fully ablaze. The fire was spreading. The firefighters were just meters away from the burning ship, hooking up hoses. In, in 1957, um, Billy Wells, uh, who was the only responding firefighter who survived, he did an interview with CBC, and he described heat so intense that he couldn't even look at the Mont Blanc. He said, oh, I'll tell you, it was some blaze. I guess it was going up five or six hundred feet in the air. And then it happened. At 9.04 a.m., the Mont Blanc exploded in a flash of white light. In a flat. At 9.04 a.m., the Mont Blanc exploded in a flash of white light. The earth shook. The sound was heard hundreds of kilometers away, and Halifax would never be the same. Four of the Patricia's crews were killed instantly. William Broderick, whose grave we stand in front of, Michael Maltus, Hoseman, Walter Hennessy, and Frank Killing. Chief Edward Condon's car was tossed through the air, killing him and the driver, Deputy William Brunt. 
Duggan and his horse were both killed. The horse's harness was found more than three kilometers away. Glass shattered and flew through the air, killing, maiming, or blinding anyone in its path. Wooden buildings were reduced to toothpicks. A black hail of unconsumed carbon fell from the sky. A flying piece of shrapnel from the Mont Blanc's hull uh, hit John Spruin, who was still racing toward the scene. He died within hours. The explosion blasted Billy Wells right into the Patricia's driver's seat. His clothes were torn to shreds. He hit the ground, battered, bloody, and bruised, still clutching part of the Patricia's steering wheel, ripped off its column. It blew, it blew the toes all off me, but I wasn't so badly hurt. It only took a hunk out of my arm, that's all, Wells told CBC. As the percussive force of the explosion ripped through the water, it manifested as a nine-meter tsunami of salt water and, and debris. The wave washed away the bo- body of John Duggan along with countless others. Wells got caught up in the wash and was dragged 150 meters, tangled up in telegraph lines and almost drowned. And despite all of that, he had a sense of humor about it by the time he talked to CBC in the 1950s. He said, I guess there wasn't room in hell for me. <laughs> These guys are hardcore. Fighting fires on horseback? Wells also told his children about the horrors he'd seen that day. Bodies caught high off the ground in telegraph wires, headless corpses hanging limp from the windows of houses. It was a practically unimaginable scene of devastation. In all, more than 1,700 people were killed, 9,000 people were injured, and 6,000 Haligonians were made homeless, all in the blink of an eye. Despite everything Wells went through, he was a firefighter, and he still managed to help two terrified children find their way to safety. It was all Wells had left. He collapsed in the street and had to be carried off to the hospital. Spent five months in hospital before returning to active duty with the fire department. I'm taking my time with this, yeah. Jordan, because this, people don't understand. We think, oh, the explosion. We, we pass by remnants of this every day. Frank Leahy, who is a hoseman from the Patricia, also survived the initial blast but died of his injuries on December 31st, 1917. Leahy, Condon, and Broderick are all buried in Holy Cross. Six other firefighters died in the explosion. The rest of the Halifax Fire Department found itself in the midst of the worst disaster in Canadian history. Right? They've got to go on. Yeah. The chief's dead. They've lost, you know, they, they've lost a bunch of people, and they've got to go on. They probably, like, lost family members and friends, yeah. and they've got to go ahead and deal with this, right? As wooden buildings collapsed, coal stoves overturned. It was the middle of winter. Anyone who could afford it had a basement full of coal. If the firefighters didn't spring into action, the entire city might have burned. Against all odds, the Halifax Fire Department had almost all the fires under control by 4 o'clock that afternoon. Haligonians would need the same uh, courage, resolve, and determination that their fire department showed. It took years to rebuild the city. Families were broken. Children were orphaned. Scores were blinded from watching the burning Mont Blanc through the windows, and, and you know they exploded into their eyes. I used when I was a reporter on the anniversary of the explosion. I would go talk to this guy Wilford Creighton. Uh, when I talked to him, he was 104. He had been 14 when the explosion happened, and he told me that for decades, Spring Garden Road was lined with people. Uh, you know, panhandling, begging, blind people who had lost their vision in the explosion. That's how much wow. it had changed the city. And of course, the CNIB, the Canadian National Institute of the Blind, was found, founded in Halifax as a result of that. Interesting. In some ways, Halifax never recovered. December 6th is still a day of somber reflection. And at the end of his 1917-18 um, report, the new Halifax fire chief, J.W. Churchill, remarked, this present is the saddest year 
our department has had in its history. After his retirement, Billy Wells, who you know gave us those, uh, that memorable interview, went on to become a crossing guard at Russell and Gottagen Street, which isn't very far from where all his friends were killed. He died in 1971. He's buried in Mount Olivet, that other Catholic cemetery I told you about on Mumford Road. In 1992, to mark the 75th anniversary of the explosion, Halifax firefighters raised money to create a memorial to the nine fallen firefighters outside the Lady Hammond Road Fire Station. The explosion remains the worst single event loss of life for any fire department in Canada. Um, and on the 100th anniversary of the explosion, the uh, chief at the time, Ken Steubing, told CTV News, the historical number still stands today. I hope it's a record that will never be broken. Wow. Uh, interesting way to revisit the story of the Halifax explosion through this grave, but yeah, it um, puts it into context to stand in front of it like that. Yeah, and just, you know, these simple yellow stakes are an easy way to um, remind people, but as I said, when you, when next time you're going to Halifax Shopping Centre, just uh, peek out your car window at Mount Olivet Cemetery and look how you know, some parts of that cemetery are just a sea of yellow stakes, and it gives you an idea of how many people lost you know, not just the people who lost their lives, but all the people who lost friends and neighbors and family members. The psychological impact it must have on the city is something, you know, we can probably never fathom. I think it's actually both of these. Just one second. These are yeah, what we're walking up to now is definitely a different look. These are big because these are the merchants of the city, you know? The merchants of the city who could afford uh, the biggest gravestones in the best place. Um, we are just right here in the shadow of uh, Our Lady of Sorrows Chapel. And these are, you know, the most uh, prominent uh, gravestones probably in this part. They, they rival the size of the gravestones for the bishops on the other side of the church. Yeah. And this one is for the Power family. And I think we should also go look at the um, Kenny family. And we will uh, be taught. Here's what we'll be talking about. Patrick David Power lost at sea in the steamship city of Boston in the winter of 1870, aged 21 years. Let's go take a look and see what else we see just uh, next door. I think it's fair to say this gravestone is also just as uh, substantial. Yeah. It's a big family plot, which means there's a big stone in the middle and um, all these smaller stones to mark individual people. But over here, Edward J. Kenny, who was lost at sea January 1870, same, same time period as uh, the Power Boy. So let, let me tell you about them, and let me tell you about the city of Boston, which is a mystery that gripped this entire city for uh, months. So Edward J. Uh, Kenny and Patrick David Power Jr. have uh, a few things in common. They're members of uh, the most prominent merchant families here in Halifax, and they vanished into thin air aboard a ship called the City of Boston. So Halifax's connection to the ocean built the fortunes of many of its most prominent families, uh, but the sea also humbles us regularly, battering us with storms and stealing away loved ones lost to the waves. 
In the days when voyages by ship were the only way to cross the Atlantic, not even the wealthiest were spared the cruelties of of fate. In the winter of early 1870, the scions of two powerful Irish Haligonian families disappeared, along with hundreds of other souls when the SS city of Boston vanished almost without a trace. The Kenny family was among the most influential Irish households in Halifax. Sir Edward Kenny moved to Halifax from Cork with his brother around 1824. They were both employed by a merchant who shipped goods from the old world to the new. Soon enough, the brothers started their own firm, uh, the granite edifice downtown known as the Dennis Building. Mm-hmm. It's currently all like torn apart. It's right across from Province House. Yeah. You yeah. know that building? Um, that building was erected for the firm of T.N.E. Kenny, the family business, and he became one of the richest men in Nova Scotia. <clears throat> Sir Edward Kenny established himself as a pillar of the community. He was the head of the Char- Charitable Irish Society. There's that group appearing again. Mm-hmm. And a founder of the Halifax Club. He was a founder of the Union and Merchants Banks, the later of which would become uh, the Royal Bank of Canada. Right? The Merchant Bank of Canada became the Royal Bank of Canada. The city's aldermen elected him the second mayor of Halifax. He served as senator from 1867 to 1876. Am I painting a picture for you that this was a prominent family? He had 12 children. <clears throat> Three of his sons joined the family firm, including his namesake, Edward J. Kenny, who had board the doomed ship SS City of Boston in the winter of 1870. Patrick Power, Patrick Power Jr. is the one who's lost on the ship, but his father, Patrick Power Sr., was born in uh, <clears throat> Kilmac Thomas, County Waterford, Ireland in 1815. He immigrated to Canada along with his parents in 1823 and founded a dry goods company, Patrick Power and Company, which was um, became big enough to require its own wharf and ships, being bring products to and from Halifax, from New England, and across the Atlantic. Just like the Kenny family, um, Power got involved in banking and politics. He was the director of the People's Bank. He was a supporter of Joseph Howe in the struggle for responsible government. And he was an anti-Confederate. He worried that confederation with Upper Canada would disrupt his trade route along the Atlantic uh, coastline. He was elected twice to the House of Commons. He was uh, made a Knight of the Order of St. Gregory by Pope Pius the 10th, right? These are prominent families. Patrick Power Jr. was one of his eight children. He worked in the family business and he um, boarded the SS City of Boston along with John Barron, who was another Haligonian who worked for Power's family. There were 51 Haligonians on the ship, including women, children, and servants of other wealthy merchants. So it shoved off from Halifax on January 28, 1870, had 191 people aboard. Besides a crew of 84, there were 55 cabin passengers and 52 in steerage. It's a three-masted ship outfitted with two steam engines and a single screw propeller, which is, people think SS stands for like steamship. Well, I've had to learn so much about boats. I guess. <laughs> because I people in Halifax die at sea all the time. And um, it actually uh, stands for single screw, um, a single screw propeller. This would be the ship's uh, 42nd voyage across the Atlantic. The ship had seven watertight bulkheads designed to save it from sinking in case it colli- uh, collided with an iceberg. Just a little bit. It's a short entry. Steamships were invented in the early 19th century, but it's still standard practice to outfit an ocean-going vessel with masts and sails. They were used to conserve coal, but also gave a measure of security. Ocean travel relied on sails for thousands of years, and people weren't in any hurry to do away with them. The British Royal Navy wouldn't launch a ship without sails until 1871. 
So the weather was cold and clear on the day the city of Boston left Halifax. The ship was expected to arrive in Liverpool, England around February 15th, maybe the 20th at the latest. These are the uncertainties of ocean travel at yeah, the time. You had a five-day window for arriving, but it never made, made it there. A violent wind and snowstorm battered the coast two days after its departure. Once the ship went missing, many blamed that storm for the ship's demise. Haligonians passed the time with theories, rumor, and speculation. First, they just thought maybe the ship was delayed, maybe it got blown off course by the storm. Other ships that departed around the same time were having the same sort of delays. Um, it was a stormy time in the North Atlantic. But the days turned to weeks and the mood got darker. On March 23rd, 1870, an edition of the Chronicle, or the, sorry, the March 23rd, 1870 edition of the Morning Chronicle said, all day long at the clubs, the reading rooms, on the streets, and in every place the question is heard. Any news of the city of Boston? And the unwelcome answer, none, gives rise to the most gloomy forebodings. So that's the tone in Halifax as they wait for this ship with 151 Haligonians, including, you know, the children of the most prominent families to arrive in England. It's never going to make it. There were reports from other vessels of a ship adrift and wreckage off the coast of England. Eventually, the family's home in Halifax had to accept that their loved ones were lost. But that's not the end of the story. The, the waves eventually carried grim news that shed some light on what might have happened. Two months after the ship was to arrive, a scrap of wood washed up on the shores of Perrinporth, Cornwall. Someone had inscribed it with the words, City of Boston is sinking, February 11th. The tides delivered a message in a, in a stone bottle to Crantock, Cornwall, that said the ship had collided with another vessel and was sinking. Another bottle contained a note dated February 4th. The city of Boston is fast settling. We've lost four men overboard. Three have died. In great hurry for our preservation, the ship is on fire and hurrying all passengers to the bows. We have had to come under canvas, which means to use the sail. Our propeller is broken, and we are now at the mercy of the waves. God help us. God help us. I am on my bare feet and have been all the week. There's a week between the first letter and the last. The state of the correspondence footwear in the February 4th letter makes it seem as though the emergency had already lasted about a week. A hazy, horrific picture begins to form about the last lonely days of the city of Boston's passengers and crew. A letter found in a bottle on the shore of Staten Island, New York, dated March 12th, gives a few more details. It said a fire broke out in the engine room and that the first attempt to dispatch a lifeboat went horribly wrong. It capsized, drowning 40 men and women. If all the letters are bona fide, and nobody, nobody's saying they are, the last survivor spent a month aboard the drifting burnt hull of the ship. When they left Halifax, there was food and fresh water aboard, but the waiting and the dread of the inevitable can only be described as torture. The letters could all be hoaxes. Mm -hmm. The story was well known at the time, and the people, somebody could have been trying to profit off it or just trying to make mischief. Mm -hmm. The most likely fate of the ship is that it never made it through the winter storm early in its voyage. It's a, it's a more merciful ending yeah, than those so. aboard drifting somewhere in the North Atlantic for weeks. Five years after the ship vanished, there was speculation that its fate might have been sealed by a dynamite fiend with a famous name. Do you know where this is going? No. Do you know who's the uh, dynamite fiend, the mad bomber with a famous name with connections to Halifax? No? No. An explosion in Bremerhaven, Germany had killed 80 people on December 5th, 1875. The culprit was one Alexander Keith Jr. 
Oh, really? <laughs> the nephew of Halifax's brewer and politician of the same name. Keith had rigged a barrel full of dynamite in the hold of a ship to explode when it got to sea. The plan was for the ship to disappear without a trace and to collect insurance on the cargo aboard. After the premier detonation... Sorry. After the premier... Well, I think I was being too clever here. <laughs> after the premature detonation of the ship, Keith shot himself and later died of the injury. Investigators began looking into other nautical, mysterious disappearances to see if they could connect them to Keith. And since he lived at Halif in Halifax at one time, it was natural to suspect him in the case of the city of Boston. Another possible link was a fake name that Keith used in the Bremerhaven bombing, which appeared on the passenger list of the city of Boston. But it was just a coincidence. He had chosen as a fake name the name that belonged to a Haligonian fur merchant. Okay, wow. So, there what you have story. it. The story of the city of Boston disappeared without a trace on the North Atlantic. Connections to all of Halifax's most prominent family, including uh, the famous brewer and politician Alexander yeah. Keith. And just this idea of them being, if it is true, if the notes are true, them being lost at sea, sending out these notes to be found, recapping you know, what they've been going through. That's a, that's a whole other kind of side to that story. Haunting. Yeah, simply. Haunting stuff. So this is, you know, one of my favorite cemeteries to walk around because it's just, I don't know, people don't find cemeteries as pleasant as I do. But this, you have to admit, the setting here is really something. Certainly. I think most cemeteries in downtown Halifax are this peaceful little corners of the city where like you go one block in any direction you're literally downtown Halifax where we're in this nice quiet park scene birds chirping old trees we're getting into the early afternoon light and you can see the carvings on the gravestone much more clearly and one of the unusual things about this cemetery is that all the gravestones face west and almost always uh, even in pre-Christian cultures, the gravestones face east. Um, but that's because this was built onto the back of um, Fort Massey, the okay. military cemetery, which is on the eastern side of this hill, right? Okay. All of Fort Massey faces east. All of uh, Holy Cross faces west. We have these two historic cemeteries standing back to back in the middle of downtown Halifax. Yeah, it's very odd. This has been fantastic. A beautiful spot. I'm definitely, anytime I drive by here now, I will look at it in a different way. I w all I want is for people to see cemeteries differently. There's going to be a day when we don't have many new cemeteries. Cremation is a lot more popular than it used to be. People are finding all sorts of new solutions to the old problem. The old problem, the reason for this place existing is everybody needs a place to put their dead. Someday places like this aren't going to exist or they're going to exist only as a um, a historical artifact but we're also under so much development pressure you know every day to um, try to solve this uh, crisis of homelessness yes. that we see in our community but also uh, the motives around profit um, every square inch of uh, green space in the city is uh, used up you know maybe for the better but there are still these places you know where you can walk and spend some time and if you dig just a little bit you can find at the very least a story that will interest you and if you dig a little deeper 
you can learn a lot about the history of your community and the people who lived here before you. Uh, before we wrap it up, tell us a bit about the book. Last time we talked, it was just as you released the book, I believe. But it's still in print, still available. The book is doing great. It's been out for about a year. It's called Dead in Halifax, Stories of Adventure, Scandal, Heartbreak, and Heroism. And it's easy to find. You can find it at uh, Bookmark on Spring Garden Road, or you can find it in the Coles in Halifax Shopping Center, or just about any other local bookstore. The big chapters in Bears Lake has it too. Um, or you can go to my Twitter, uh, at Dead, Dead in Halifax, and order it straight from the publisher there. Okay. And if you're interested in uh, having like the kind of experience that uh, you've had today, Jordan, uh, and walking around and hearing some of these stories from me in person, I'm going to start doing a limited number of graveyard tours. People can contact me through Twitter, DMs are open, and I'll let people know when I have them scheduled. And they're about an hour, and they are hopefully fun and interesting, and not as gloomy or spooky as you might think. I want to thank you for joining Craig and I for our walk amongst the dead at the Holy Cross Cemetery. Perhaps he inspired you to get to know the people buried in your town. If so, let me know how it goes. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Nighttime, but before we part, I'm going to end with thanks. First, a big thanks to Craig Ferguson for sharing an evening with me and with you, the listeners of Nighttime. If you enjoyed Craig's work and his storytelling prowess, I can't recommend his book Dead in Halifax enough. I've added a link to get a copy of it in this episode's description. Next, I have a big thanks to Monty Data, who contributes the music for this episode, and LJ from Dystopian Simulation Podcast, who provides my intro and outro voiceovers. And lastly, but most importantly, a massive thanks goes out to each and every one of you listening to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping this show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if you want to help take a bit of weight off the show's back, please consider subscribing to the premium feed. And not only does the premium feed fund the creation of the show, it'll give you the episodes two days early, it'll give them to you ad-free, and it will give you access to a full back catalog of nighttime episodes. If that sounds good to you, for only about the price of a cup of coffee, you can subscribe to the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, let me thank the newest subscribers, Chris, Daniel, and Leslie. Thank you for your generous support. If anyone else would like to support the show, but can't do it by way of a premium feed subscription, you can give me a big hand by simply sharing this episode on social media and letting all your like-minded friends know what we're doing here. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, I'd love to receive a voice memo from you. You can send one at nighttimepodcast.com contact. I hope to hear from you. But until then, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte.